as we are getting our Bibles out and turning to John chapter 10 this morning, let's take a moment and consider what a blessing it is to have chapter and verse numbers in our Bibles, right? Thank, thank the Lord for the men who dedicated their lives to helping us have a more user-friendly way of reading Scripture. Just think about it, how much easier it is for you to find John 3.16 in your Bible as compared to, for God so loved the world, just turning to John's gospel and trying to sift through the sea of text and find those words. And it's not just the chapter and verse numbers that we should be thankful for. The little subheadings that we find in our English Bibles are also immensely helpful. They're not there in the original manuscripts, but they are a helpful organizational tool. I'm particularly uh, thankful for these subheadings because I have just always had a hard time remembering Scripture addresses. So what that means for me is that as I serve the church as a pastor and I'm constantly pulling out God's Word to teach... I kind of have to navigate my way to what I'm looking for by using the subheadings. I generally know what book something is in and then roughly which chapter it's in, but usually I have to kind of find my way there by looking at the subheadings. Now, as we praise God for these things, we must also remember that there is no such thing as an unmitigated blessing in a fallen world. Subheadings are useful but they can also be misleading. Sometimes when we see a new subheading in our Bible, we mistakenly think that there has been a change of subject. Right? We think that there's been a break in the story when in fact there hasn't been. That may be the case for you, members of 6th Avenue, as we walk through John's Gospel and as we move out of John chapter 9 and move into John chapter 10, you may be inclined to think, oh, last week was John 9, the blind man, and this week is John 10 with the subheading the good shepherd so new week new sermon new chapter new subheading new story but that's not right john chapter 10 is very much a continuation of john chapter 9 which by the way is a continuation of john chapter 8 so in order to help us see how john chapter 10 is a continuation of john chapter 9 i want to draw your attention back to john 9 for just a moment 9.24, look there with me. So for the second time they, that's the Pharisees, called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. So here we see the Pharisees calling on the blind man to agree with them in their profession of no faith, that Jesus is in fact not divine, that he is actually a sinner. Now, look at John chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. Jesus approaches the man who was once blind, who has now been healed, and and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's in verse 35. And in verse 36, he answers, And who is he, this Son of Man, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, 
I believe. And he worshiped him. So here's the situation. The blind man, after he is here, healed, hears the voice of two testimonies. It's as if he's a sheep and there are two shepherds calling out to him, each one saying, come and follow me. The Pharisees are saying, follow us. Jesus is not God. He is, in fact, a sinner. Listen to our voice. Come along with the rest of our flock and be in agreement with us. The other voice is the voice of Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. I am the Savior of Israel. I am Lord and God. Follow me. I am the Messiah. So whose voice should the blind man listen to? The voice of Jesus or the voice of the Pharisees? And we see in verse 38 that he chooses to follow Jesus. He chooses to ignore the voice of the Pharisees. It's as if he doesn't even recognize their voice. And he decides to follow Jesus. Why? Well, that's the heart of John chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. So let's read it together. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by any other way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It's completely sufficient for all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we need you to be with us this morning. We know that you are gathering a flock for yourself from amongst the nations. And your voice, as we hear it in your word, is calling out to us this morning. So we pray, God, that you would apply it to our hearts by your spirit. In your son's name we do pray. Amen. Hey, uh, Cohen, can you just turn me up a little bit, buddy, before we get started? Thanks. And it's a little warm in here, so... Y'all hanging in there? Did you get your church fans at the door? Okay. So, there's a lot for us to unpack in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. So, I'm going to break this up into two sermons. This first sermon, I'm just going to give us some historical context. I'm going to help us make sense of the text, and then we're going to have an extended meditation on Jesus being a good shepherd. Is that okay? Does that sound like a good time? And then next week, we're going to come back and we're going to dig deeper into some of the main ideas of the text. So, before we really dig into the text, I want us to take a moment, I want us to zoom back out, and I want us to remember what this book is really all about. So can we just turn from John chapter 10 all the way over to John chapter 20? John 20. Real quick before we get started, go to verse 31. Speaking of the content of everything that's here in John's gospel, John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My great hope this morning, friends, is not merely that you will have a better understanding of the literary themes of John's gospel or a greater knowledge of the historical context of the Bible, or that you'll have a more fully developed of, uh, doctrine of this or that aspect of Christian theology or Christology. I do want those things for you, but I don't merely want those things for you. My great hope this morning is that as you hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you from His Word, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. May anyone who has ears to hear, hear what God has to say to them this morning. I've got three points for you. Point number one is going to be context. Point number two is going to be characters. And then point number three is going to be considerations, which I just did for the sake of alliteration. And that's really just going to be three subpoints. okay, that third point. I'll, I'll give them to you as we go. So, context, characters, and consideration. Point number one, context. Jesus begins this response to the Pharisees 
with the words truly, truly. You see that flipping back over to John chapter 10. Let's make sure we, we don't close our Bibles, that we're ready to look back at them. Right there in John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus begins with the words, truly, truly. Now, if you look at this phrase in the Greek, it's just two, two, one word repeated twice. It's actually the word amen. Amen, amen, depends on where you come from, how you pronounce it. If you're reading it in the Greek, you might say amen, but the idea is the same. It's just the repeated word, amen. And uh, yeah, traditionally the word amen was used after an utterance as a form of agreement. It was like saying, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you that it is true. So take, for example, 1 Chronicles 16. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then all the people said, Amen. But Jesus does something different with the word. He puts the word at the beginning of his utterances. And in so doing, Jesus is He's, he's trying to make a point. He, he's trying to say, listen up. I am the truth. And what I'm about to say to you is exceedingly true. I know it's true because I heard it from my Father in heaven. This is really important. So you should lock in, focus, pay attention. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is for you, members of Sixth Avenue, and everyone else who's here. Jesus is saying something that is exceedingly true to you this morning. Time to focus, lock in. Pay attention. Jesus begins this illustration of sorts by saying, listen to me, Pharisees. Listen. And then he launches into the illustration. And it's an illustration that may not make immediate sense to us, unless maybe we've spent time studying the shepherding practices of the ancient Near East. Anyone? No? Okay. Well, let's, let's dig into the background, the context here. In the ancient Near East, most families would keep sheep. And they would keep them for all the reasons that one might expect, right? For food, for clothing, for sacrifices. And they would need to keep the sheep somewhere, right? Most families would have a sheep pen that was either close to their house or attached to their house. A typical sheep pen would be like a, a stone wall. It wouldn't need to be too high because sheep aren't that big and they can't jump very high. And so it would just be a stone wall. And then there would be briars on top of the stone wall to keep people from crawling in, you know, they didn't have barbed wire back then, you see, so nature's barbed wire is these briars, and then there would just be one gate, right, a door to the sheep pen, only one way in and one way out. Then, of course, the sheep would need a shepherd. The shepherd's job is to guide the sheep and to nurture the sheep and to guard the sheep. The shepherd would come to the pen, he would call out the sheep, he would lead the sheep along the path, take them maybe to a nice little grassy area so that they could eat and then have them drink from the river. And he would be on the lookout for wolves and then he would guide them back and put them back in the sheep pen. Now, sheep pens were very often shared by families. You had to have a lot of money to kind of have your own sheep pen. So what would happen is let's just say, you know, the butchers and the millers and the demarses lived near each other and we all had sheep, we would just have a sheep pen built. And we would put all of our sheep in there together. And then the shepherd from each family would come along, and when he would need to take care of his sheep, he would call them out. And the sheep would be able to recognize the voice of their shepherd. And so the sheep that belonged to the other families wouldn't come out. They would stay. And the sheep that belonged to you, 
the shepherd of your family, well, they would follow you out of the sheep pen as you would go and lead them along the way. Then, of course, we have here uh, the character of the gatekeeper. Jesus references the gatekeeper. Well, who is that? The gatekeeper is the person that would kind of be on security duty when the shepherd isn't around. This would largely take place during the night hours. You want to make sure that these thieves and robbers, right? Uh, the thief is the one who kind of steals the sheep by being sneaky, right? The robber is the one who comes and steals the sheep by blunt force trauma, knocking somebody upside their head, but they do the same thing. And then there's the wolves who are constantly hungry and trying to get into the sheep pen and steal the sheep. The, the gatekeeper is the one who stands, you guessed it, by the gate to make sure that that doesn't happen. And the gatekeeper knows you only open the gate to one person, the shepherd. And that's pretty much the context. That's the context. That's the historical background for this illustration that Jesus uses. So let's move on to point number two. This one's going to be shorter than point number one. Characters. Here we're just going to try to figure out in Jesus' parable and his illustration and his story who's who. So in this illustration, Jesus is the shepherd. He is the true shepherd, the good shepherd. He's the one who has come to lead the sheep. You can see that in verses 11. Look there with me. I am the good shepherd. Right? Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. We're going to talk uh, more about what Jesus is doing with the sheep next week. The sheep in, the, in this illustration, they are the Jews, the Israelites, the sons of Abraham. Maybe. We'll see more about that next week as well. And then there's the gatekeeper. Here's where things get interesting, I think. The, the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus tell them this story, they would be inclined to think that they are the gatekeepers. Yes, we stand guard over the sheep and we make sure that no one you know, comes or goes who shouldn't. We're here to take care of the sheep. God of Israel is the one true shepherd and we will not let anyone who's not from God have access to these sheep. But as Jesus tells the story, it becomes clear that the Pharisees are deluded. They think that they're the gatekeepers, but they are, in fact, the thieves, the robbers, the wolves. That's point number two. Man, point number three is going to be even shorter. No, I'm just kidding. This is the longest point of the sermon. I've got three subpoints for you, note takers. Here they are. First subpoint is God, uh, excuse me, the God shepherd. Subpoint number two is the good shepherd. Subpoint number three is the okay shepherd. The God shepherd, the good shepherd, the okay shepherd. Subpoint number one, the God shepherd. As we consider the teachings of Jesus in John chapter 10, we find yet again, it's really blowing me away, guys, as we walk through the, the gospel of John, how often this happens, we find yet another claim to divinity. Well, how so? Well, in declaring himself to be the good shepherd of Israel, Jesus is not just saying, you know, I got a good heart. I love people. I want to take care of them. I'm a people person. I'm a good caregiver. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying, I am Yahweh, the God of Old Testament Israel. Jesus is claiming a title for himself that in the Old Testament, and all the Jews would have known this, belongs to God, 
and to God alone. Just listen. Psalm chapter 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. That is the psalmist talking to God. You are the shepherd of Israel. Consider Psalm 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. So who are we talking about? The Lord God. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In our scripture this morning from Ezekiel 34, we see that God appointed under shepherds in Israel who did a bad job and he comes along and he says, guys, I am the true shepherd and I'm going to fix what all these bad shepherds did. Or just consider the opening line of perhaps the most well-known psalm of all, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. That's L-O-R-D in all caps. It's referring to Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament. So make no mistake about it, friends. When Jesus comes along and tells the Pharisees that he is the good shepherd of Israel, he is making a very specific claim about his identity. Subpoint so number two, the good shepherd. Of course, it must be noted that in saying that Jesus is the good shepherd, he's not merely trying to communicate his deity. That's not the only thing he wants the Israelites to understand about himself. He's also communicating the way he exists as a deity. He's trying to tell them something about how he relates to his people as their God. And he relates to them not as a giant wagging finger in the sky, not as an impossible angry father that you can never please, not as a persnickety mother who's always in your business, but as a shepherd, not a cruel taskmaster, not merely a judge but a shepherd who loves the sheep, who cares for the sheep, who wants to protect the sheep from those who would do them harm. And he's still doing all of that for us today. Even as he reigns from heaven, Jesus is still our good shepherd. I think this is so beautifully pictured in Psalm 23. That's why I had Will lead it Uh, before we went into a prayer of praise to prepare our hearts to consider our God. But let's just turn back there. Save your places in John 10. Go back to Psalm 23. Friends, I know that we are all inclined to let our, our understanding of God be shaped by our earthly experiences. But our understanding of who God is needs to be primarily shaped by His Word. How He has revealed Himself to us. And this is uh, just a really sweet revelation from God about His nature and character. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I love that he's speaking about God, and just halfway through the prayer, he, he can't talk about God anymore. He has to just start praising God. He has to talk directly to him. He's like, God, you are this. Uh, God is like this, and God is like that. And he's like, no, 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 I need to say this to you. You, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amazing. So uh, my question for you this morning is, do you believe this? Brother Christian, sister Christian, is this how you think of God? Do you see him as your very good shepherd? Do you believe that in Christ Jesus you shall not want? Do you believe that because your good shepherd loves you, loves you so much that he gave his life for you, that he will give you every good thing that you need? Now listen to what I said. Every good thing that you need. Not everything that you think is good. Not everything that you think you need. But everything that your soul will need to prosper and prosper eternally. Do you believe that God desires to give you good rest in green pastures. I know we live in a concrete jungle, even in Decatur, Alabama, but if you've never laid down in a beautiful grassy meadow on a warm spring day, you probably don't understand this language here, but if you ever have gotten to do that, just get back out to nature. Just go to Wilson Morgan Park when it's quiet and no kids are out there, or maybe go out to the refuge or find somebody who has some land and just go lay down in the grass and and turn off your phone and rest. That's what God gives to us, and he delights to do that. He delights to refresh us and to restore our souls. Said another way, in the form of a question, do you feel like God is refreshing you? Is your relationship with God toxic? Do you feel like God is just always a cruel taskmaster driving you forward with with unkindness and and harsh commands and demands for your life? Or do you understand that even his discipline and even his commands for you and how you should live your life, ultimately that's meant to give you rest. Rest here on earth, but rest eternally. Do you feel like God is a burden to you in your existence? Or do you feel like he is the only thing that allows you to keep going? Do you believe that Jesus will not let you stray, as the psalmist says, that he will not let you stray to the left or to the right, that he will make sure that you stay along the path. You see, what's happening here is he's picturing us as dumb sheep. And we are. And we're trying to get from one place to another safely, and we can't. We're going to veer off the path. And he says, no, I'm here to make sure that that doesn't happen. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to get there. The psalmist says that he's made brave in God. He says, I will fear no evil. I'm walking through the, the valley of death here. Carnage all around me and I'm not afraid. How is that possible? He says, as a little dumb sheep, that when he feels afraid, the wolves are out there. You can hear them howling in the woods. You can hear them and he's nervous, he's afraid and he just looks and he sees there's the rod and the staff of his shepherd. He goes, 
They can't get me. They can't get me. Are you made, made brave in God? Friends, do you understand that we are still walking through the valley of the shadow of death? That Jesus has sent us out as sheep amongst the wolves? That there is much to be afraid of, but because Jesus is walking with us and leading us through this valley, we don't have to be afraid? No fear-based parenting. No fear-based church leadership. No fear-based husbanding. No fear-based political engagement. No fear-based pursuit of holiness. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus is our good shepherd. It changes everything. Friends, do you understand that Jesus is not a begrudging shepherd? He's not a hired hand. He owns us. He loves us. He delights to be with us. Look at John chapter 10 again. Go back there. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, why? Because he is a hired hand, and he cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I'm not like that. I care about you. I love you. There's a lot to unpack here, but for now, I just want you to see that Jesus loves us, his sheep. Jesus is not staring at the clock, just waiting for his shift to end so that he can get back to that which he really cares about. No, he really cares about you. When Jesus is serving as our shepherd, it doesn't ever feel like he's on the clock. Work doesn't feel like work for Jesus when he cares for us because he loves us. He wouldn't rather be doing anything else in the whole world. That's what I tell people when they say, oh, being a pastor, that's got to be hard, right? And I'm like, yeah, it is pretty hard sometimes. But I don't, you couldn't persuade me. You couldn't pay me enough money in the world to stop doing this. I love the sheep on my best days. I love this picture that Jesus employs here, this, this contrast that creates clarity. It's the contrast between the owner and the hired hand. A hired hand sees the wolf coming, and he runs. Maybe he kind of, hey, get out of here, you wolf, right? But he's not sticking around to fight the wolf, which is smart. Have you guys ever seen a wolf? I wouldn't want to fight a pit bull, much less a big, scary, gnarly, wild wolf. You fight a wolf, you bleed. You die. The hired hand says, I'm not doing that. $12.50 an hour? I'm not fighting a wolf for $12.50 an hour. Are you crazy? He takes off. But Jesus is not serving us for $12.50 an hour. Jesus is serving us because he loves us. And so when he sees the wolf, he squares up. He bites down on the mouthpiece. He grips the rod and his staff tightly, and he engages. He's ready to die so that we might live. 
think about it like this. Imagine that there is a couple that goes out on a date night to celebrate their anniversary. And before they go out, they need to hire a babysitter to watch their kids. They're not old enough to be at home alone by themselves yet. And so uh, the 16-year-old neighbor girl down the street, she's always done a good job for a fair price. I think her name would be something like McKinsey, right? That sounds, ooh, that's trustworthy, right? Uh, call, call McKinsey. McKinsey comes over. You say, hey, listen, we're going to be gone till like 9.30, maybe 10. Uh, money for pizza is on the fridge. Phone number, call us if you need us. Please don't call us. So you go out and you, you enjoy one another. You know, the husband and the wife, they go out and they have a, a slow walk by the river and then they go to dinner and then maybe they have a couple of drinks afterwards and good conversation. And then finally, they're like, all right, let's go home and put on pajamas and eat ice cream in bed right, which is like a great way to end a date night, if you ask me. And so, as they're driving home, they see a red glow off in the distance. That's weird. And then as they get closer, they smell smoke in the air. The husband's heart drops. He's pretty sure it's a fire. He tells his wife, to call the babysitter, to check on everything. It could be our house. It's probably not. Calm down. It's probably not us. But just in case, call. He begins to drive faster, trying to get home quicker. He's trying to be calm, but he's worried too. And as they turn onto their street, they can see off in the distance that their, their home is going up into flames. pedal to the metal, floors it. He, he tears into the driveway. The husband, he jumps out of the car. He runs towards the house. And, and, and as he does, the babysitter comes running out. And she is screaming and she is crying and her face is black. And she says, I tried to get to him, but I just, it was just so much fire and smoke. And I, I tried, I just couldn't get into him. And the dad, he's not waiting around to hear that. He didn't even hear a word she said. All he heard was that the kids are in the house and he takes off into the house. No protection. Fire, smoke, it doesn't matter. My kids are going to die. That is the difference between a good shepherd and a hired hand. The babysitter loves those kids, but they're not her kids. She's not going to go in and fight the flames. She's not going to risk her life. But the dad's not even going to think twice about it. That's Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd who runs headlong into the fires of God's wrath. Poured out on sinners like us so that he might save us. Why? Because he loves us. A hired hand does what he can. But the owner does what he must because love compels him to act. Jesus is the good shepherd. And on the cross, he faced down the wolves and the Pharisees and the governors and the king and Satan and death and hell. And he gave his life. He paid the price. He suffered the wrath of God. He did not make it out of that house alive. And he did it because he loves us. I don't know everyone's story in this room, but I know enough of our stories to know that many of us have never known a love like that. 
Many of us have the story of knowing people who were supposed to protect us, but who only hurt us. Having people in our lives who were supposed to feed us, but who only starved us and then fattened themselves on our misery. Some of us have the story of people who were supposed to lead us and to love us, but who instead failed us and left us. And friends, if, if that's you, I, I know what you're going through. I've been there. That's my story too. And I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that you don't have to let that be the last word in your story. I'm here to tell you that Jesus loves you and he doesn't want you to only know that. He wants you to know his love and there's nothing like his love in the whole world. There's no security in the world like the security of Jesus as he leads us along the path. There's no food in this world more succulent or satisfying or savory than the food that we can receive from the hand of Jesus, our good shepherd. And there is no better guide through the valley of the shadow of death than the one who entered into death itself and overcame it. You, friend, are a sheep. And you are going to follow someone's voice, whether you realize it or not. This world is full of voices calling out to you, follow me, follow me. Are you going to follow the voice of the false shepherds, of, of the hired hands, of those who don't actually love you, who don't care about you, who just want to use you up, who want to chew you up and spit you out, who really only love themselves and only love you insofar as it serves them? Or are you going to follow Jesus, the one who loved you enough that he gave his life for you as a ransom to buy you back to God? Can you hear his voice? Subpoint number three, the okay shepherd. This is where most of our application this morning is going to be. We've already established that Jesus is the true shepherd, but he also appoints something called under-shepherds in the church. Those are your pastors. The word pastor is just the Latinized version of the word shepherd. Uh, according to Scripture, all pastors are shepherds, or at least they should be. You be thinking, Sean, I came from a church where I had a pastor and he didn't shepherd me very well. I'm sorry. He's derelict in his duty. What we read in Ezekiel 34, all those rebukes, that's aimed at that pastor who didn't shepherd you and care for your soul. But pastors in the church are supposed to shepherd the sheep. They're supposed to imitate Jesus. You can see that in 1 Peter 5. Turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're not super familiar with Scripture, 1 Peter is towards the back of the New Testament. So chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, and that word elder is just the same word for pastor. I exhort the pastors or the elders among you as a fellow elder pastor and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, 
as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We could just keep going down, but the point that I want you to see here is that as Peter addresses pastors in the church, he tells them, he exhorts them, do your job. Your job is not to manage the business of the church. Church isn't a business. You shouldn't even be thinking like that. Your job is not to promote Jesus on social media. Your job is not to win the culture. Your job is to shepherd the flock that is among you. Take care of all the sheep that God has given you. Notice, it doesn't say shepherd the world. Shepherd your flock. So, after Christ was buried and raised again, he ascended into heaven. When he did, he appointed pastors to serve as his under-shepherds. He's still the good shepherd. He's still the one true shepherd of Israel, and he appoints us to serve as his under-shepherds until he returns. You can see that in a few verses later. Look at verse 4, if you're still in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive your unfading crown. So Jesus is gone. He appoints us as under-shepherds until he returns. So, there you have it. Now, let's talk about why we are just okay shepherds and not good shepherds. We are just okay shepherds because we are sheep like you. All the elders, all the pastors of any church anywhere, they're all sinners. They're all humans. We're just doing our best imitation of Jesus. Which means we're kind of like the B team shepherds, or really the C team. But we have been appointed by God nonetheless to do our best Jesus impersonation. To look at the way that he loves the flock and cares for the flock, and then to try to do our best to imitate that. So, getting really practical here, members of Sixth Avenue, do you understand that the pastors of this church are laying down their lives like Jesus to serve you as a shepherd? Do you know that? Do you see that? Do you feel it? Well, Sean, there was this one thing that happened, and I didn't feel like the pastor loved me as well as I could have been loved in that situation. Yeah, and I'm sorry. And we're going to try to do better and make sure you tell us about it so we can be aware of it and always be improving. But even with our flaws and our foibles and our failures, do you overall comprehensively see that the elders in this church, the pastors, are giving their lives to shepherd you, to protect you, to guide you, to nurture you? (coughs) You may not see it. You may not see it all. You may not see the long nights or the early mornings or the fervent prayers. You don't see when me and the elders get together in a meeting and we spend half of our time praying for the church. You don't see that, but we do it. You may not see the difficult one-on-one conversations that we have where we have to exhort or rebuke a member or just the abundance of conversations we have where we very often encourage the members. You may not see the, what it looks like for us as shepherds to lay down our lives for the sheep because you can't see the stress, the pressure, and the anxiety that we often go through as we try to lead you even as we are wrestling with our own sin issues. You may not be aware of the hospital visits and the weddings and the funerals and the baby visitations 
and the planning and the coordinating and the training and the preparing. You don't see all of the studying. You see me up here rambling on for an hour. You're waiting for me to finish so we can go to Las Vegas. Amen. But you don't see the hours that I spend studying and praying over the text and writing and rewriting the sermon and, and having other brothers listen to it and help me make it better. You may not see it. You may not see the, even the highest of highs, the laughing and the celebrating, the lowest of lows, the crying, the hugging, the consoling, the waiting, the listening, the failure, the despair. You may not see the fight against hopelessness, the marriages that we are unable to save, the cancer that we can't cure, the stories of sin and suffering and brokenness that we hear all day, every day, as it seems like God sort of just rubs our noses into the worst effects of the fall. You may not see the feeling of utter insufficiency that we wrestle with. You may not always hear it, our confessions of sin, our, our constant criticism that we endure. You may not even see the fears that we experience in our hearts as we do our best to lead you. You don't always see the sheep that run or the sheep that bite or the sheep that stray or the sheep that fall into a hole in the middle of the night and bleat for help. Friends, there's a lot about what your shepherds do to serve you and to love you that you just may not be aware of. Consider the wolves, the wolves who are always dressed like sheep. Scripture says that they are fierce wolves, and guess where they come from? They rise up from among us, and they seek to devour the flock and to lead many astray. You may not be aware of many of the battles that we, your pastors, are engaged in to protect you from wolves. You may not see it when we face down the wolves, when we grab the staff, assume the stance, and go to war. You may not see it when we bleed, but friend, you should know that the elders of this church bear the scars of battle in their souls because they love you. Your under-shepherds are not the good shepherd. We are mediocre shepherds at best, and sadly, we are very often not at our best, even though we always strive to be. We always strive to guide you along the true path. We try with everything in us to guard you as relentlessly and with the same fierce love as Jesus. And we hope to nurture you with the loving care of the good shepherd, but it is not always easy. There are 80 of you and four of us. Well, Sean, shouldn't you be raising up more elders? Yes, we are doing that. But Scripture says it's better to have fewer elders than to be too quick to lay hands on someone and appoint them to a position of authority that they're not ready for. We have, Will, last count, 10 men in elders training right now. I praise God for that. What an evidence of grace. But we're not going to speed that process up along. So now we're just four of us with around 80 of you, and we're just doing our best to serve you. And on top of that, we have to care for our own families. A man who does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. That's what God's word says. We first have to minister at home, and that's not always easy. You may not realize it, but one of the main battles that your pastors have is not giving their spiritual leftovers to their family. 
This is something that I am guilty of, and if I talk about it much longer, I'm going to break down and cry because of the way that I have given my life to serve the body, and very often I've given my family the leftovers. And on top of that, we still have to fight our own battle with sanctification. I remember when I first got to this church, and we were in the revitalization process, and we were like a year and a half in, and things were as bad as they could possibly be according to the flesh and I did not have eyes to see in the moment what God was doing and I remember calling my the guy who discipled me and I called him and I'm crying and I'm I'm like this is the hardest thing I've ever done you know what I wanted to say right it's going to be okay you're doing good God is with you you're gonna win you know what he says to me He says, yeah, yeah, that battle with sanctification must not be that hard. It was somewhat sarcastic, a little flippant. I was very offended. What he said was true. But I just thought, that's not what I need to hear right now. Now, what happened was about a year later, once I came out from under the fog of difficulty and suffering and I got out of my pity party, I saw that's exactly what I needed to hear. Because at the end of the day, The greatest battle that we all have is the battle against the sin that lives within us. It is infinitely more difficult than anything that we do here as we minister to one another. It's the main thing that makes ministering to one another difficult. Friends, you should know that your pastors are weak shepherds. Some of you are like, trust me, we know. Thank you for bearing with us. I'm encouraged as I consider the life of other under-shepherds in Scripture Consider Moses. Towards the end of his life, he was beset with sin and weakness. He just had the big freak out on the Israelites. And because of the big freak out, God was like, hey, buddy, you've done good. You don't get to go into the promised land, okay? And then his body was growing weak. And he was beset with difficulties in every way. And at the ripe old age of 120, Moses told his flock, that he could no longer be their shepherd. He says, I'm no longer able to go out and come in with you. I'm just too weak. This must have been very difficult for Moses. Moses was often angry and frustrated with his people for good reason. They were stiff-necked and hard-hearted, but he still loved them, and he wanted to serve them. And it was difficult for him to think about laying down his crook, setting aside his staff to go to be with the Lord and leaving the sheep behind. He was anxious for them. God, what are they going to do without a shepherd? Not Notice, not what are they going to do without me? What are they going to do without a shepherd? And so he goes to the Lord in prayer in Numbers 27. He says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Moses couldn't stand the, the thought of the sheep being weak and vulnerable and exposed without anyone to lead them and guide them and nurture them and protect them. So he went to God and he said, appoint them a shepherd. Friends, do you know that Jesus prayed that same prayer for you? Do you know that right before Jesus went to the cross, he went to the Father in prayer and he said, Father, I've done everything that you've asked. I've gathered these sheep to me. I've cared for them. I've trained them. I've prepared them. But I don't want to leave them 
as sheep amongst the wolves. So send help. And he did. He sent the Holy Spirit. And then he sent shepherds through whom the Holy Spirit works in the life of the church. Which means that pastors, listen, I know that I could, Sean, isn't this a conflict of interest? You're standing up there, you're a pastor, you're saying what you're about to say. Listen, whether I'm here or not, I want all of you as Christians to just understand this general truth. Pastors are a gift to the church, given to her so that she might grow up into the fullness of the image of the Son of God. Do you feel that way about your pastors? Do you feel like they are an indispensable gift, not only for your individual Christian life, but for the life of our church here together? Romans 13 tells us to honor Though, excuse me, to give honor to whom honor is owed. So when was the last time that you uh, made an effort to show intentional honor to the pastors of your church? Guys, if you know me, you know I'm not up here wanting you to come and pat me on the back after this, right? I honestly feel very loved and encouraged in this church, but this is still a worthwhile question to ask. When was the last time that you intentionally honored your pastor and recognized them as a good gift to this local church. As we close, I want us to consider Moses again. Moses prayed for another shepherd for Israel after his death, and the Lord heard his prayer. Most immediately, the Lord appointed Joshua, and Joshua would lead Israel, the flock of God, into the promised land. But you know the story. We just talked about this in the book of Judges. We talked about how Joshua was sinful, just like every other shepherd of Israel. He was weak. He was a jar of clay. He was lowly. He led the people into the promised land, but they couldn't secure it, and they couldn't sanitize it, and they didn't keep it, and then Joshua died. You see, friends, what we need is a true shepherd, a shepherd who won't die, a shepherd who isn't weak. We don't need the shadow, we need the reality. We need a perfect shepherd, a shepherd who will never fail his sheep because he's incapable of failure. We need a shepherd who's greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than David. A shepherd greater than Paul or Peter or Calvin or Luther or Grimke or Spurgeon or Piper or Dever or Platt or Washer. We need the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the true shepherd of Israel. We need the shepherd of Psalm 40. And I love the way it begins. Right in verse 10, it says, behold, right? Like, don't just analyze him. He's the king coming in glory. Behold him. The Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. (coughs) Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will. You you can bank on this. Are you hearing it? He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. Why does it say in his bosom? He's saying, I'm going to put them in the place where they are most safe, where they are nearest to my heart. I will care for them like someone who loves them. And I will gently lead those that are with young. The most vulnerable among us will not fall out 
I will care for them. Friends, this is the shepherd that we need. More than me, more than, elder, uh, more than the other elders, Grant, Shane, Will, future elders, we need the shepherd of Ezekiel 36. Any under-shepherd without an over-shepherd is worthless. This is the shepherd we need. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. The Lord God declares, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I shall seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. This is our shepherd. Let's pray. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you that you are our king and our judge and our Lord, but you are also our tender, loving, caring shepherd. You are the great shepherd of God, and we confess our complete confidence in you as you lead us, that you will do all of these things for us, your people, because you have loved us, because you've purchased us. We know that you will protect us all the days of our lives. You will be our God, And we will be your people. And we will fear no one and nothing as we behold you in your glory. Amen.